So 13 years ago uh, was my first class at Asbury Seminary, and uh, I was thinking I was a pretty awesome guy at that time. I had just served in Papua New Guinea. I had opened a Wesleyan Methodist Bible College and taught for a semester, church planners. So I was excited when the professor said, today when we open class, we're going to share our names and a little bit about ourselves. I was like, you know, I'm ready to share with these folks a little bit about me. I'm so thankful that Jesus many times saves us from ourselves. The person two in front of me uh, was on staff at a church in Korea that had over 7,000 in attendance. The gentleman right before me was from India, was coming back for his second doctoral degree, had planted dozens of churches, and had opened a seminary training hundreds of pastors. So by the time it got to me, I just said, my name's Zach, and that's about all I got. 13 years later, my name's Zach, and that's about all I got. Literally, um, I'm very humbled by the opportunity to be here with you this morning. Many of you in this room are my heroes, and I don't deserve to be kind of behind this pulpit in this space. The reason why I'm here, though, is because I've been a front row witness of Jesus doing some incredible things. And so it's just like when you get called to say, like, you were at this right place at the right time, so tell us what happened I'm kind of your eyewitness for what Jesus has done, not only in my family's life, not only in my city, but kind of throughout the nation in regards to some things. Share a little bit more about that tomorrow, but, but let me just kind of summarize it by saying I had came off the mission field in Mozambique in southern Africa and was kind of broken and, and wounded, and, but I wanted to go back overseas as soon as possible. I'm part of the Wesleyan denomination, and uh, my district superintendent asked if I would go and preach for a while to close a church. You know, the thing that you really want to do when you're kind of struggling anyways is to go to a declining church. Uh, Needless to say, that was almost seven years ago, and that's not what happened. Uh, Jesus has a history of getting close to dead things and raising them back to life, and so I watched that happen in a community that's extremely diverse. Uh, Our church is extremely diverse. It's multicultural and multilingual, and I've learned a lot about what that looks like. Uh, But I also realized along the journey as I befriended immigrants Um, that there is some very complex things related to immigration law in the United States of America. Uh, And so I assumed I could just point people to say, here's where you go to get those kind of problems solved. There was no place in my community for that to happen. Uh, I found out that the Department of Justice actually has a program that if you're a nonprofit, you would get training in immigration law, pass a test to show your competency in immigration law, get experience. You could actually provide immigration legal services like an immigration attorney can. So I asked my wife, can I do this? I have lots of bad ideas. For whatever reason, she thought this was a good one. And I went and did that, and I opened one of the first local church-based immigration legal services office in the nation. Uh, I now run 18 immigrant connection offices and train a lot of church leaders in how to do this in their community. I share all that just to say that I'm not just a pastor who loves immigrants and refugees. I share that also to say that I know immigration law. This is one of the hats I wear. I have found just in general, if I can give you any bit of advice, the more hats you wear, the less you have to wear any of them well. And so I have found that being a pastor and an immigration legal representative actually works really well for me. And so as I share today, I share out of a knowledge of kind of the law and the situation. But before we get to the doing, and if you're like me, you're wired here today, kind of want to get to the heart of like, how do I do these things? Like, how do I actually do this in my church and as a, as a leader for Jesus? And we'll talk about that tomorrow. Before we get to the doing, I want to start with kind of the going. John 4.4 4 is a passage that, that many of you know well. 
Uh, I'm always kind of enamored by that idea that Jesus had to go through Samaria. You know your geography that the the quickest point between point A and point B is a straight line. And so if you're going from the southern part of Israel to the northern part, you would cut through Samaria. And that's true. A lot of people in Galilee, where Jesus is from, when they came to the feasts and the festivals, they would go straight through Samaria. But you also know that a lot of the people in the south, especially the Pharisees and the religious elite of the day, they would cross over the Jordan and they would bypass Samaria. Two-day extra journey to kind of get around Samaria. And that's kind of been, a, a, at least for me, a very personal part of my narrative is that I've been a missionary in the far parts. I've served in Jerusalem, in Judea, but I bypassed Samaria at all costs. You know anything about how Samaria developed? Uh, you know, the Assyrians came in and they took out a lot of the wealthy inhabitants and took them to other parts of the Assyrian Empire at the same time, bringing in other eastern peoples who would come and intermarry with the people in the northern kingdom. Then you know that 150 years later, you know, the southern kingdom was exiled, and as they came back to rebuild the temple, there's this passage in Ezra that's kind of unique. The people from the north that would become the Samaritans come down and want to help. And I'm not a scholar, I'm a practitioner. I don't know why they did it. I know that some people would say that this is kind of uh, a way to try to form a relationship or an alliance, and so they had ulterior motives. Or maybe the people in the north thought, like, we kind of have a shared history, we have a shared identity, a shared ethnicity, shared ethics, we intermarried, with, with Jewish women, like, we want to come and help our friends. I don't know why they asked. But we do know that the exiles in the southern kingdom said, we don't want your help. We'll take care of this alone. Once again, I don't know why they did that. Maybe it was because they felt that the people in the north outnumbered them. They'd be swallowed up. Maybe they saw the ulterior motives. Maybe they thought, you're not really as much like us as you think. You're kind of unique. You're other. You're strange. You're different. But for whatever reason... This sets off a series of events. You know, the Samaritans, if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, you realize they kind of push back and they complain to the authorities and they make it really hard to rebuild uh, the temple and the wall. And then what we have by the time Jesus comes around in the story in John chapter 4 is this, this, wonderful, this wonderful creation of what we know of this separation of Samaritans and Jews. We would have the Jews who now have the power and the privilege saying that, you know, Samaritans aren't allowed to offer sacrifices in the temple, that you're not allowed to intermarry with Samaritans, that Samaritan food is non-kosher, Samaritan wine is non-kosher. You would have during the Maccabean period, the Jews would actually destroy the Samaritan temple. And so you have this creation of this division. Um, and it's not as if the Samaritans are a threat. They're more of a nuisance. They're more of something that makes you uncomfortable. They're more of something that you kind of just want to ignore and push aside. So by the time we get Jesus and this Samaritan woman, John, the gospel writer, kind of jumps off the page, and as they start to have this conversation, it's in parentheses in a lot of our English translations, he, he says, hey, by the way, readers, listeners, just so you remember, Jews and Samaritans hold nothing in common. They don't associate with one another. It's unique. I feel that throughout history, People with power and privilege have a tendency to create Samarias. And, and before I get too much into this, I realize there are many international students with us. And while today I'll talk a lot about the context of the United States of America, the reality is in your country, if you will allow the Holy Spirit to kind of speak to you, you will find that you may have Samarias as well. When I was in South Africa, when I lived in Mozambique, I would go to South Africa occasionally to the airport, and it was unique that all the media accounts 
blamed a lot of stuff on Mozambique and immigrants. And I realized that, you know, there are different tribes and people and clans, and no matter where you are in the world, we have a tendency to create Samarias. In the United States, um, we have a long history of doing this. Um, the first hundred years of our nation's history, we didn't really have immigration laws. It was pretty much if you got here, you're good to go. And then near the end of the 19th century, we started putting uh, a legal code in related to immigration. And what's unique is right off the bat, we start creating things that say, these people have value and these people don't. The first immigration laws said the idiot, the imbecile, the feeble-minded, the people who can't support themselves, they don't have a place with us. They need kept out. A few years later, near the end of the 19th century, after the California gold rush, uh, we felt the people in power at the time, there are too many people of Asian descent here, so we set off for the Chinese Exclusion Act that anyone of Chinese descent was not allowed in our country for 60 years. That was the law of the land. In the 1920s, we have the National Origins Act, and literally the stated goal of that act was we were looking in the early 20th century and we were seeing that immigration was changing the dynamic of the United States demographic. And the people in power and privilege were scared of this, and they said, we don't want this to keep changing, so why don't we look at the data the census has and preserve the status quo? And so they literally set up a formula that said people that are like us are welcome in. But if you're from South or East Asia, South or East uh, Europe, if you're from Africa as a whole continent, we will restrict you coming in because you don't have value and we do. Fast forward to today, we, we've had so many recent changes resulting in the lowest refugee cap of all time, not accepting refugees, the highest level of deportations in the interior, so not people just apprehended at the border, the people who have come in the interior and actually live here are being apprehended for all kinds of reasons. We have things like legal statuses, like temporary protected status being taken away, and this is all creating these pockets of Samarias where we say, these people have value, these people don't, and we create walls, borders, fences, both figuratively and literally, to kind of create Samarias. And once again, it's not just the United States. This is a global phenomenon. 258 million international migrants around the world. No more sending, receiving, middling. Every country is a sending nation and a receiving nation. And as this movement occurs, what we're seeing is the culture kind of formulating these Samarias. Not only are they created, we have to maintain them. And I think there's a few ways that I've seen culture do this. We go all the way back to Samaria uh, so the Samaritans and the Jewish people. Like one of the things that we see is what culture loves to do in the relationship of migration and peoples is we like to paint with a wide brush. We like to give a single narrative. Like you see, well, all Samaritans are half-breeds. They don't follow the tradition. Their, their Gentiles are worse than Gentiles. So we share that rhetoric often to kind of push and create separation. Josephus tells us that around the time uh, that Jesus was born, that a group of Samaritan men came down to the temple during the Passover and spread human bones throughout the temple. Definitely a wrong, a terrible thing to do to the Jewish people. But that was one group of men. I wonder how often that story was told. I don't know how often it was told there, but I know at least when I turn on the news, even though all the studies show that immigrants in the United States are more likely to be victims than criminals, Anytime we get the story of an immigrant who is a criminal, we like to share that rhetoric again and again. 
again and again. And so we start painting with this kind of wide brush. The other thing that culture tends to do is culture realizes that if we can focus on issues, and, and so the question always, anytime I speak in a group, is like, well, what do you think about the immigration issue? And so we talk a lot about issues. And, and so the reality is, is, is what we need to do is if we focus on like issues and words and stuff like that, we don't focus on people, right? That's what happens. And so you have, like in the Mishnah, in, in the oral tradition, you know, better to eat swine than Samaritan bread. And that seems like a pretty crazy thing. It's like, can we just say Samaritan bread's non-kosher? Do we really have to raise it to this level? Well, the reality is, if you know anything about the ancient world, like bread and wine, these are elements that you partake at the table. You have table relationships. And if you want to prevent connections, you have to prevent relationships. You have to prevent table fellowship. And so there's like no way. You have to create these barriers and divisions. I think we do the same thing. We use words and rhetoric all the time in the United States. We say things like we need to stop chain migration. I don't know if anyone's ever thought about like what does that even mean it's in the news all the time the ina the immigration and nationality act that's the law that i have to use as i'm trying to navigate people through the immigration labyrinth in our country doesn't have anything called chain migration in the law you know what the words are family reunification and so if we said we want to stop family reunification that sounds you know, i don't know about so we use chain migration family reunification is what we used for decades to say if people have roots in our country, if they're U.S. citizens, they can request spouses and children and parents. It's not chain migration. These are real people and, and real family units that we've always used as the backbone of American immigration. We, we call human beings made in the image of God illegals, as if the way that they crossed a border or the way that they overstayed a visa is the defining action of their lives. May I just remind you as someone who is a legal representative that immigration law is not criminal law, it's civil law. So if you have a parking ticket or a speeding ticket, which I have several in the room, if you would like to call me also an illegal to define me by those actions that most of us in a power and privilege category would say, well, that's no big deal, but we say this one is a big enough deal that you are defined by that. And so again and again, we use these, these words in these terms. And, and what most frightens me as a pastor is that it has seeped in to the local church. Uh, Lifeway and the National Association of Evangelicals in 2015 did a study, and they, they asked people who would say that they were evangelicals kind of what they thought about immigration, and it was kind of startling. Um, we found out that 48% of evangelicals say the number of recent immigrants to the United States is a drain on economic resources. When we ask what your greatest influencers are and you're thinking about immigrants and immigration, only 2% said the local church, only 12% said the Bible. Instead, it was things like media or family and friends or political party. Those were the key influencers, not, not the word of God. It gets worse. In January, the Washington Post, ABC, they did a poll and they found that 75% of white evangelical Christians rated the federal crackdown on undocumented immigrants as positive. So three in four people thought the crackdown on undocumented was positive, where when you polled all of the United States, only 46% it was positive. And here's the one that just startles me the most. In May 2018, just a few months ago, Pew Research did a study, and they asked the question, does the United States have a responsibility to accept refugees? 
we have an all-time high crisis when it comes to refugees. What we found was that 68% of white evangelicals said no. We don't have a responsibility to accept refugees. And what is shocking is that 65% of non-religious people said yes. So I want to do two things. One is just help kind of peel back the curtain a little bit. I have a lot of people that come up to me, and, and there's, there's some common things they say, and I just, and we can talk more about this. You can find me anytime you want to, and we'll, we'll have a, a cup of coffee and kind of chat about this. But here's what I hear a lot. I hear people say, well, why don't they stand in line like we did? Maybe you've heard that as well. Uh, my grandparents immigrated through Ellis Island uh, in the 1930s. Uh, when the line was there at Ellis Island, it took four to five hours to go through. It was 20 questions, and shock of all shocks, they changed a lot of our names. I was talking to Steve last night. You know Stevie Barola. If you've seen My Name's Zach Samara, like, they did a terrible job of changing our, like, well, that was supposed to make it easier. We could have been Steve Jones and Zach Smith, and it would have been great. But that's what the line looked like. So, so a few changes, but four to five hours. So, so right now, we allow 480,000 people in the family preference. So if you're, if you're applying for a family member, we allow 480,000 visas a year. So what happens is you have this backlog. And I don't want to get too much into the weeds here, but, but every single month, the visa bulletin is published by the Department of State. And it says, here's what applications we're working on. So let's say you're a green card holder, you're a legal permanent resident, and you apply for your spouse. I just pulled up the visa bulletin this morning. Right now, they're working on applications from August 22nd, 2016. It's a two-year wait. Not that big of a deal. Let's say you apply for your sister. Right now, they're doing applications from February 15th, 2005. Let's say if you're from Mexico, India, China, or the Philippines, you have a unique line. We, we, we felt when we created these categories that those countries had a lot of immigrants, and so we should make the line different. The slowest one is here. I actually have friends that are in this line and have been waiting a while. If you are a U.S. citizen and you apply for a child who then becomes over 21 and gets married, so they're an adult child uh, that's married over 21 from Mexico, it's a 53-year wait before a visa will become available. So I share that just to say, like, we say things like wait in line, not realizing the line is different. I hear people say all the time, well, why don't they just get legal? as if it's as easy as picking up like milk at the grocery store. It's a very complex process. In my legal office, and it's different depending on what city you live in, but in my legal office, if 10 people come to me for help, there's usually only a pathway for three of them. Seven of them, no matter if they've lived here for 10 years, if they're married to US citizens, there's just not a way forward. Then I often hear, do it the right way. Ira Ira was the last major kind of immigration overhaul. It happened in 1996. It wanted to crack down on illegal immigration. So let's just give you a scenario. So you have a U.S. citizen spouse, and she marries uh, an undocumented immigrant who just crossed the border. It doesn't matter how long he's lived here. It doesn't matter how many children he has. What the law says is you can't get status while you're still in the country. You need to go back home to the country of origin, to your embassy or consulate, and come in with a visa. Makes sense? Like, okay, like, let's do it the right way, right? Here's what Ira Ira did. When that person crosses the border to go back home, if they have lived without status for more than 365 days, more than a year in the United States, when they cross the border to go home, they are barred from re-entering for 10 years. 
So the right way, the way forward in our current unjust system is saying, yeah, get your green card, but live without your wife, your kids for 10 years to do it, or bring your wife and children to some of the most violent places in the country so you can all wait out that 10-year bar together. But here's the bigger thing. Even if you know that knowledge, we are citizens of the kingdom before we are citizens of the United States. And so the question that I'm always asked by Americans is, well, Zach, tell me, is it legal or not? The kingdom question, is it just or not? We have a long history as Wesleyans, as Methodists, of great leaders who didn't ask, is it legal or not, when it came to to slavery or women's rights or, or, or workers' rights. We said, is it just or not? And we will always choose to push for justice. The question from the culture is always, is it right or wrong? And I just imagine Jesus kneeling down beside the woman caught in adultery. He didn't say that that was right, but he said there was a greater wrong that was happening here. And so he stood with people. Because it doesn't matter what you think about an issue. Immigrant connection, we're known for saying immigration is an issue, but immigrants are people. I am called as a kingdom follower, as a follower of Jesus, as someone who wants to build signposts of hope for the coming kingdom to stand with marginalized and broken and downtrodden people. Because when immigrants have faces and names and stories, it changes my understanding. As long as Samaria is something over there to be bypassed, and it's not sitting down and talking to Samaritans, things seldom change. So I'm an extrovert. I love people. My wife is an introvert, and she likes books and rooms by herself. I don't know how she can live like that. Um, So I love people always in my home. When I first came to Logansport, we found that a lot of immigrants like playing billiards, and so we put a billiards table in our basement, and we would go to bed at night with people we didn't even know their names in our basement still playing pole, and I loved it. And my wife was like, I don't think this is a great idea. And it might not have been, but I just like people. And so, like, if there's a World Cup party, if there's, like, a Super Bowl party, if there's a spare bedroom to be had, it's like, yes, let's do that. Let's have people around us all the time. So within the North American context, people always say, well, your spiritual gift is hospitality. Boy, we have watered down what that means. I I find it so radical that every list when it says, not if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, but a leader for Jesus, when Paul writes about that in Romans and Timothy and Titus, when Peter writes about it, when the writer of Hebrews writes about it, they say that a defining characteristic, one of them, is that we will practice hospitality. And yes, I know it takes an extra dose of grace for many of us to give our in-laws their spare bedroom. And that is a great Jesus thing to do or to have people share around our table together. But the reality is hospitality from the biblical perspective is philoxenos. Philo, love, xenos, foreigner, immigrants. That's radical. That doesn't happen in the world today. That isn't natural apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. I think Jesus knew that there'd be a lot of people like Zach who would love to go to God's call in Jerusalem, Judea, and the far parts, but would want to avoid Samaria at all costs. And so I think he always says, oh, and also go to Samaria, just to go there, to build relationships with Samaritans, to go and be present and welcome and love and learn from and serve. That is kingdom. 
That is what Jesus has called us to. I find it extremely unique that it's in the John 4 passage. The disciples come back with their food, their enamel. What's going on? You're talking to the Samaritan woman. And, and, and all of a sudden, Jesus says, look around you. Four months to the harvest, the fields, they're ripe for harvest. The reality is, if we go to Samaria, if we practice phylloxenos, if we practice hospitality, at least what I've found, the bridge was resurrected because of immigrants and refugees and migrants. What I found was there was a harvest that was ripe, and so the enemy will do anything to try to help us bypass this wonderful harvest that can resurrect churches, that can transform lives, that can make people like me into more of a Christ follower. And so before we talk about what's doing today, I just want to ask you, will you go? Will you figure out what your Samaria is? And here's what I've learned about Samarias. Um, when Samarias get comfortable and become more like Jerusalem's, God calls you to another Samaria. So you might be in the room today and be like, oh, I'm, I'm really fine with this group. Well, ask the Holy Spirit, okay, if you're fine with that group, what is the group that you're uncomfortable with or want to bypass or use words and rhetoric instead of building relationships? And whatever the Holy Spirit says, will you go there? Will you go there and just see what God will do? Because there are Samarias everywhere, and yet we are called to go to those places and be the hands and feet of Jesus in those places. Can I pray for you? Jesus, I thank you so much for everyone in this room. I just pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you will help us understand what our Samarias are, that we can pull back the curtain, just stop talking about things and start having table fellowship, start having true hospitality, that you will help us cross the lines, the walls, the barriers, both figuratively and literally, and actually go and be present in Samaria and so that your kingdom can come and your will be done in those parts as well. Break down the walls of the other and maybe love and welcome the foreigner and the immigrant in our midst. I pray this in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen.